From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugez, and this is The Explainer. I mean, they thought it was only about undermining Dr. Ford, but in reality, it's about undermining all past and present and future rape victims. Welcome to another episode of the Miami Law Explainer, where legal experts take a plunge into the context and relevance behind the headlines. With the Kavanaugh hearings and confirmation barely in our rearview mirror, today's show looks at the long-lasting impact of the nomination that captured the nation. Joining the explainer is Tamara Rice-Lave, a criminal law professor and widely recognized expert on sexual assault. Let's go to producer Catherine Skip for the interview. Good morning and welcome to The Explainer. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we start talking about the Kavanaugh hearing and the impact, can we talk a little about sexual assault reform? Sure. So uh, historically, the United States has not handled sexual assault very well. And what I mean is that victims in sexual assault cases were treated pretty terribly. And the result of that was that there was a very serious problem with underreporting, meaning that many sexual assault victims did not report. They didn't report because they were afraid about the way they'd be treated by the police, the way they'd be treated by prosecutors, and what would happen at trial. And so there were efforts that were made starting in the 1960s uh, through the 1970s to change that. So one of the things that was done was used to be in the it used to be the case that there was a cooperation requirement and what that means is that if somebody said that they were raped they needed proof that their word was not enough. You needed something else, a witness, evidence of injury, something like that. And of course, the problem with that is that many sexual assaults, especially once you define sexual assault as not requiring what's called resistance to the utmost, not requiring physical violence, many of those sexual assaults don't have that kind of evidence. And so the cooperation requirement in effect meant that many, many sexual assaults couldn't be prosecuted. So there was there was a, a push to change that, and that change was effective. So the cooperation requirement in almost all states has been removed. Another thing that used to happen in rape cases was that during a trial, there'd be a jury instruction that was given, and the jury instruction said to jurors that a woman's word should be treated with suspicion, that women essentially, you know, it was easy to lie, and that you should take their their word with a grain of salt. Well, of course, there's no other trial that's like that. I mean, I was a, a trial lawyer for 10 years. I was a public defender for 10 years. There is no jury instruction that's like that in any other kind of cases. And so not surprisingly, many people criticized that and, uh, and that was, um, that was removed. So the other thing was that states used to require that victims reported within a certain period of time in order to prosecute. And that period of time was often 48 hours. And the problem with that is that we know from much research that victims often don't report quickly, either because they're scared or they're traumatized or they don't know how to proceed or the person who raped them was someone that they know. And so that requirement was removed. And then last, one of the most important things that happened was there used to be the sense that there was something called real rape. And what I mean by that is that the only rape that counted was if it was someone who was a stranger and it happened in a very violent way. Well, 
That's not the way that most rape happens. Studies show uh, show overwhelmingly that most rape happens from people that by people that know each other, either intimates, husbands, boyfriends, teachers, coaches, or people that are acquainted. And so, the, although stranger rape happens, most rapes, in fact, are not by strangers. And so, this myth of the stranger rape myth, what that means is that if people believe that, if prosecutors believe it, if jurors believe it, if judges believe it, if the police believe it, then that means that most rapes that happen in this country are not going to be investigated and prosecuted. And so there was really an effort to, to try to reform that, to teach people about what rapes are really like, and to try to make it easier to, uh, to make victims more likely to report and to make prosecutors and police do a better job of investigating and jurors be more likely to convict. Based on all that, I kind of feel like Dr. Ford was... Um not handled with any of those thoughts in mind. So yes, I agree with you. I was a public defender, as I said earlier, for a long time. And the job of a defense attorney is a very different job than that of a prosecutor or a senator, for instance. So when you are a defense attorney, your job is to advocate for your client, no matter what. And it doesn't matter if they did it, you fight for them. And I did that job. I defended the Constitution proudly. But when you are a prosecutor... You are a minister of justice, which means that your job is not to advocate. Your job is to do what's right. And so it was profoundly disturbing to watch the senators bring in a prosecutor. She represented herself as being independent, but they made an awfully big deal about the fact that she had been a sex crimes prosecutor for 20 years. To bring her in and to have her ask questions and then write a report in which she essentially undermined everything we know about the way real victims are and put forward a view that many victims are never going to meet. So what I mean is, in her report, she attacked uh, the credibility of Dr. Ford on the ground that she had memory problems. Well, the research is overwhelming that when people are the victims of trauma, that their memories are imperfect. And so the problems with Dr. Ford's memory were consistent with what you would expect. I am sure that this prosecutor knew this. So basically, it either means she didn't know it, and it means that when she's been handling 20 years worth of cases, she's been dismissing the words of victims who are telling the truth. That's one option, which is a terrible option. The other option is that she did know what the research is, and she decided she was going to ignore it in order to undermine the testimony of what I believe was an extremely credible witness. And so that's really disturbing. And then what's the job of senators? I mean, senators aren't supposed to be ministers of justice in the same way that a prosecutor is, but we'd like to think that they care about the truth. We'd like to think that they care about the legitimacy of our legal institutions. And the fact that they that they used this hearing as an opportunity to, I mean, they thought it was only about undermining Dr. Ford, but in reality, it's about undermining all past and present and future rape victims. So I found it to be extremely disturbing. And I think that that hearing will throw back many, many years of reform efforts. What do you see as the, the repercussions of, of the hearing and the treatment of Dr. Ford? and the fallout after the hearing. 
I'm extremely worried about whether or not victims are going to come forward. We know that there is a serious underreporting problem. Now we know that many victims, most victims do not report. And they worry about what's going to happen to them if they do. And now they know what's going to happen with them, to them. Dr. Ford got death threats. President Trump spoke publicly and belittled her and belittled the Me Too movement in public in front of people who cheered uh, cheered along with him while he made fun of her. That is extremely, extremely concerning. It's not just what President Trump did or said. It's also what his wife said. So Melania Trump said on CNN that a rape victim should have proof before she comes forward. Well, that's not what the law requires. The law does not require cooperation. And when she says something like that, it's a way of saying what the law is demanding is not really supposed to be that way. So I worry about future jurors. I worry about when a jury is being instructed on the law, if they think, well, we're, we don't buy it because there was no cooperation, because they remember what President Trump did, or they remember what his wife did. And so I find that very, very uh, dangerous. So I worry about women not reporting. And I frankly worry about men committing rape because they've learned that they can get away with it. I mean, the law has, the criminal law has a deterring function. That's one of the goals is we, we have, we punish people in order to send a message to other people not to, not to commit this particular wrong. And in this instance, what would a young man learn? I mean, the young man learns that he looks at, listens to this person who lied repeatedly under oath, who yelled, who belittled senators, who didn't answer questions, and he got away with it. And so I think that I worry that men are going to think, well, if I do it, nothing's going to happen. And let me just say that there's a, there's a, a, a professor who is at Loyola in uh, Chicago. His name is Stephen Russian. He did a very interesting study that looked at the impact of the Trump election on hate crimes. And he found that after Trump was elected, that hate crimes went up. And he found that they particularly went up in places that had voted for Trump. And the theory that they came to was that the reason why that was happening was because people basically felt validated in their hatred. And I worry about this. I worry whether or not men who watch this are going to think, well, we can do what we want to, wim to women because nothing's going to happen. And not only that, we're going to have women standing up and saying that we had the right to do it, which is what some of these women said when they said things like, well, this is what all men should do. This is what boys do in high school. Well, I was in high school once. Boys didn't do that. No, no one I knew did that, at least not with me. And if they had, it would not have been okay. And so I don't think it's an appropriate thing or a legal thing or a right thing to say this is what we expect from our young men because we should not and we don't. What do you think this does to the legitimacy of the court? Uh, I am heartbroken by this. I, apart from the issue of whether or not he committed sexual assault, he showed himself to be non-judicial. He did not have the temperament of a judge, nonetheless a justice. You know, I just think about when I was a public defender, if I had had a client and the client said, well, why should I follow the law if the justice, if a justice in the Supreme Court doesn't? I mean, of course they should, but 
when you look at somebody who is in the, one of the highest offices in our land who has lied, which which is perjury, by the way. I mean, lying is wrong, but it's not just a sin. It's perjury if you're under oath. And he lied under oath and he's getting away with it is extremely disturbing. And let me just add one other thing too, which is the role the FBI played in this is of deep concern. So we have this institution that's supposed to be about truth and we're supposed to rely on it for figuring out what's happening. And the fact that they did this dumbed down, you know, half-hearted, incomplete investigation to essentially whitewash over what really happened and give a cover to senators and the president and Judge Kavanaugh is appalling. The fact that the Republicans, the Republicans tainted with truth, right? Prevented, presented an incomplete version of what happened, did not deliberately look at what happened, is deeply, deeply concerning. And it also undermines the legitimacy of our legal institutions. Any final thoughts? You know, I'm a mom and I have a five-year-old daughter and I it is heartbreaking to think about raising a child right now and trying to teach them what you think is right and to just think to myself, I just don't want her to see what's happening because I don't want her to think that she can lie and cheat her way to success. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Explainer. Next week on our show, we'll have Natalie Barefoot, a practitioner in residence with Miami Law's Environmental Law Clinic, where she is the supervising attorney on projects ranging from toxic torts to inequality effects on low-income communities. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. This week's show was brought to you by Miami Law's Health Rights Clinic, a pro bono medical legal partnership in collaboration with the UM Miller School of Medicine.